Hi, this is Steve. People often ask us, how do we decide what movies get the full two-part treatment on the cinephiles? Well, sometimes it's obvious. Seven Samurai is not only one of the greatest films ever made, but it also happens to be three and a half hours long. Other movies like Chinatown or On the Waterfront are shorter, but are also so significant in the history of film that we know ahead of time that they will stretch into two episodes. However, sometimes we assume our conversation about a film is going to be one episode, then have so much fun talking about it that we suddenly realize well over two hours have passed. That was certainly the case yesterday when we dug into Monty Python's The Life of Brian, in honor of the great Terry Jones, who we lost a few weeks ago. Now, this is a 90-minute comedy, not exactly the film we expected to be a cinephile's two-parter. But the truth is, this 90-minute comedy has more to say than most big dramas and more controversy than just about any film in recent memory. And yes, this is a film that takes the razor-sharp wit of Python and uses it to cut through what they see as the hypocrisy of what many people find sacred. So, if you're brave enough, I highly recommend a pilgrimage to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Life of Brian along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. Then come back on Friday to hear us discuss Mighty Python's The Life of Brian. We'll leave it up to you to decide if it's heretical, blasphemous, or just plain funny. All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host all over Los Angeles, California, and rabid religious enthusiast. So I can't, <laughs> I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Well, I am a rabid atheist, yes. so this is going to be... <laughs> This is going to be exciting because yes. the movie we're talking about today, and 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 this is really a sad reason, is yeah. is we lost the great Terry Jones, one of the Monty Python. You know, this is the. It's weird that we're now like, I always put Monty Python and the Beatles together in my mind, totally and sense. that they are they are fewer. Yeah, you know, yeah. and we lost the great Terry Jones uh, recently, and so we're doing uh, Life of Brian. Mm-hmm. We've already done Holy Grail. And we wanted to talk about Life of Ryan. And actually, this is also a Patreon pick from oh, um, Michael Orokar. And of course, we would love to hear why Michael chose Life of Brian as his Patreon pick. Hi, Stephen John. This is Michael from Sweden. And I want to thank you for choosing to talk about Life of Brian, which, according to me, is the best thing that Monty Python has ever done. Really looking forward to hear you dissect this movie. And I especially hope to hear some comments about what you think that this movie says about religion. Thank you for everything you're doing. You're awesome. So thank you very much, Michael, for your support on Patreon and for picking this great film. Um, and since this is, since we did lose Terry Jones a few weeks ago, I wanted to just take a moment to do a little bit of biography of yeah, him. Please. He was born in Wales in 1942. His uh, mom was a homemaker and his dad was a bank clerk, but he didn't know his dad for the first three years of his life. He didn't meet his dad until he was four years old because his dad was out with the RAF fighting in World War II. Wow. Uh, and he said that when his, he first saw his dad and his dad came up and kissed him, he had never been kissed by anything that wasn't smooth skin. Huh. And it was just this, who is this strange 
person that's kissing me. What an interesting thing to remember. Is that? But I mean, but that's yeah. so. The re, that's why I brought it up because it's so, you know, tactile, yeah. and I, that's the things you would remember when you're three, four years old. Yeah, you know. Um, he uh, went to Oxford, of course, and studied history, spe- specializing in the medieval world. And this is, you know, if you want to find out more about Monty Python, you could go way, way back to it's like one of our first 10 or 15 episodes mm. and listen to us talk about Holy Grail. But all of these guys are all highly educated. Yes. They're either Oxford, Michael Palin and Terry Jones, or Cambridge. Uh, and I think Eric Idle was also at Oxford, and Cambridge is. Uh, John Cleese and Graham Chapman. I mean, these and these guys were all studying to be barristers and historians. And I mean, these were, yeah. and of course, Graham Chapman's a physician. And it was at Oxford uh, doing shows with the Oxford Review that he met Michael Palin. And this is what Michael Palin said about Terry Jones. He said, the first thing that struck me was what a nice bloke he was. <laughs> he had no airs and graces. We had a similar idea of what humor could do and where it should go, mainly because we both like characters. We both appreciated that comedy wasn't just jokes. Yeah, And I, I like, I, what I, the reason I wanted to say that is comedy wasn't just jokes. I mean, that's. We're going to talk about Life of Brian today. Yeah. And there are certainly a lot of jokes, mm-hmm. but it is certainly aiming at very, very specific stuff. Right. Before Python, he and Palin became writing partners, and they went off and did a bunch of small TV stuff, little sketch shows and mm-hmm. children's shows. And then the big place that they really started to hit was a TV show called Do Not Adjust Your Set, yeah. which became a really famous thing. Everybody is tuning into this show. They're working with Eric Idle on it. Then they went to work on the David Frost show. And it's just so fascinating to me that we know, of course, Frost Nixon, Yeah, you know, that David Frost was doing this comedy show with all the pythons Mm -hmm. you know and that's by the way where terry jones first started playing that very particular monty python (laughs) middle-aged woman you know (laughs) that voice is just in my head yeah always yeah um and spam 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 (laughs) spam spam exit spam I yeah. showed that to Jax when he was probably three, and he thought it was the most hilarious thing he's ever seen <laughs> in his life. Um, and uh, of course, we, you know, after that, there's Monty Python, which is a huge hit as a television series. Yeah. They go on to go on tours to do live performances, and of course, do the Holy Grail, which he co directed with Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Life of Brian, he does not co-direct with Terry Gilliam. This one he directs on his own. Um, after Python, he directed Eric the Viking, which is. I liked Eric the Viking. I remember okay. seeing it in the theaters. Uh, Wind in the Willows in 1996. That's one I haven't seen. I haven't seen. Yeah. And then there was a movie in 2015. I literally didn't know that this existed. Yeah. This is Absolutely Anything starring Simon Ke- Pegg and Kate Beckinsale and the voices of Robin Williams and all the surviving Monty Python crew. Yeah. Have you seen this? No, I've I've seen about it. I've read about it and seen like the trailer and stuff, but I haven't quite found myself in the mood to watch it. It's supposed to be pretty bad. Yeah. And I watch but it was weird as I watched the trailer and I'm like, that looks funny. Right. But I don't I don't think it is. There's not a lot of I mean, well is it not a lot of them that broke out of this and then you know, like Cleese is the rarity with faulty towers and then like, you know, establishing a film career. Ter- Michael Palin goes on to host a bunch All of documentaries and the right, exactly. Yeah. And Eric Idle, of course, 
does the ruddles and writes the music and does it occasionally pops up in films and what have right. you, but it's never Grant really Chapman died. Craig Chapman passes away from I think it's AIDS, yeah. And so and then you have but the I was trying to make a dark pipe on this <laughs> okay. joke there, but it didn't really it didn't the, fly. Well, look, when they put the urn of Terry of Graham Chapman on That's the seat, funny, I mean thing. it's the best. Um but Terry Jones for me, it's so funny, Steve, because now that I've gotten older, like when I was first into Monty Python, it was Cleese always. It's like the Chevy sure. Chase of Monty Python, right? Cleese. And then it was Eric Idle. Right. And Same Mike, for me. Michael Palin, of course, a little always like the Paul McCartney. You know, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It feels like a little bit of the Paul McCartney. He's always the populist and doing the right thing. He's sweetheart, blah, blah, blah. But then as I've gotten older, I've come to a I came to appreciate Terry Jones more and more for his writing, his uh inventiveness, his intelligence. He some of his he's also hosted a bunch of documentaries and things did, of that nature. Did. Those kinds of stuff. I was always fascinated by his brain, by Terry's brain. And when when I used to hear and you would read if you study Monty Python the the battles that him and John Cleese used to have. Huge. Yeah. And so you'd go, "Okay, I under I used to be on Cleese's side when I was younger and as I'm older I understand Terry's side so much more and I'm more on Terry's side cuz Cleese was a temperamental uh actor temperamental star very very much believed his stuff terry on the other hand was more of a of a uh, just very strong determined guy about what he knew was right and what he knew didn't work and cleese didn't like that and i think maybe cleese in a way was intimidated by terry's intelligence well and i think this is this is the thing i get off of python which i which i love which is that they argued a lot yes they had differences of opinion they didn't shy away from those differences of opinion and they respected each other and knew that that was necessary to the process of making the stuff. Yeah. And if you listen to, cause I spent the day listening to a whole bunch of commentary tracks and, and particularly Terry Jones, John Cleese and Terry Gilliam, their strong opinions are right there. Yeah. But they also, all three of them say, and I was wrong and Terry Jones was right. Yeah. You know, or Terry Gilliam was right about this. Right. Or Terry Gilliam's idea was brilliant, but we couldn't really do that. And that's right. why we didn't. You know, it's like they, there, there is, it is a lot of intensity and a lot of passion and a lot of respect. And in a weird way, it's something we've heard, like we've heard about Pixar. Certainly we've heard about the Beatles. Yeah. Is we, you know, is that these are places where there is going to be a lot of conflict and that conflict is going to make the thing better yeah you know that rarity yeah i think it's a rarity when yeah. you have that many alphas in the room or that many people that are that intelligent determined and are adamant about what they think is right well and, and, and as you said terry jones went on to do documentaries yeah. about history and tv shows yeah. he wrote books on medieval and ancient history he wrote about chaucer and richard ii and it's just so yeah. awesome to me that this brilliant comedian just went well this is what i'm interested in yeah now um and uh, he died a few weeks ago, and it's just so sad from frontal temporal dementia and aphasia. So in the last three or four years, he had lost the ability to speak. Yeah, and you know how much of his brain was in there is hard to know, and that's just such a such a terrible, difficult death. Yeah, when you watch that recent BAFTA, uh, when he received the mm -hmm. award with his yeah. son, and his son was speaking for him, just having him say those few words right at the end of the speech. Um, you knew that was like all he had left in yep. there to be able to say. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking, a man of such intelligence and so many things to say about so many things to all of a sudden have that voice uh, silenced. He ends up like the old man in the hole, you know, on yeah. a vow of silence. Oh, my God. Know? Yes. And wow. Being that's, Terry wow. Jones, that is right? really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, yeah. but and that's an interesting point. Yeah. So before we get into pre-production, I want to do something that I've done only a few times on The Cinephiles, which is I feel that it's important to give a warning. 
So, uh, sure. so like when we talked about Boogie Nights or when we talked about uh, Chasing Amy or certain other films, there were subject matter that some people might have strong opinions about. And this uh, film is going to go right into religion. And we cannot, I don't feel, talk about Life of Brian without to some degree talking about religion. Yeah. And so I'm putting that warning out there that <laughs> this is, you know, the film goes to some places and the cinephiles is going to go with them. All of the Pythons, including Terry Gilliam, had religious training and religious upbringing. So whether it was the guys in England under the Church of England having, you know, strong education and having to go to chapel and having to be altar boys and sing hymns and all that stuff. Or Terry Gilliam, who's apparently he says that he was pretty much a religious zealot. By the age of 16, he had read the Bible twice. And all of them, and he was just a full-on guy. It seems like Terry Gilliam is always full-on <laughs> yeah. in what he does. And all of them, in their own way, at different times, fell out. Yeah. Yeah. So Terry Gilliam's is that he started making jokes about God, and everyone in the church around him was really offended. And he went, what kind of God can you believe in that can't take a joke? Yeah. And that's it for Terry Gilliam. <laughs> Eric Idle describes his religious training as singing and beating. Wow. So there was a lot of the, you know, get the paddle, right? Um, unsurprisingly. And he went up to an old priest who was a teacher, and he pulled him aside, and he said, do you really believe this? And the priest said, well, old bean, not really. <laughs> and he went, that's it. <laughs> like, if you're going to beat me, but you don't really believe what you're saying, I'm out. Yeah. Cleese was a full-on atheist. Yeah, of course. Everyone else, is sort of, yeah, everyone else is sort of at a different kind of level. When you think you're God, it's yeah. hard to believe that there is a God. <laughs> I would imagine. That's a fair... That's a fair point. Um, um, And so they make Holy Grail, and it is a much bigger success than they thought, because Holy Grail, let's be really clear, was a really hard shoot. Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones did not get along as directors. They had no money. They're shooting in super difficult conditions, um, and they were kind of like, we're done. And then people kept asking them, well, what's the next movie going to be? And what they say is that, you know, they started to go like, Oh, there might be money in this, and all of them said, "You know, for comedians, money is a is a big motivator." <laughs> and jokingly, at some event that they had, they get asked again after many many times, "What's the movie you're going to do next?" And Erica Idle jokingly replies, "Jesus Christ, lust for glory." <laughs> <laughs> and Terry Jones falls out of his chair. He thinks that's the funniest thing he's ever heard, and they start to go. Of course, they're not going to do Jesus Christ, lust for glory. But the Jesus idea gets sort of interesting. And Terry yeah. Gilliam and Eric Idle, they came up with a sketch that's not in the movie. They never got to this point where it's Jesus on the cross and the Romans, the cross keeps buckling because the Romans are such bad carpenters. And Jesus, being a carpenter himself, starts giving them advice on how to better set up the cross, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a really funny idea. It's really you got a wobbly table here. Yeah. You got a wobbly table. Let me put something underneath. But then early oh, on, they decided they brilliant. didn't want to make it about Jesus. Mm. And and I love that they're reasoning. Because, of course, as they're thinking about this period, what do what your basic comedians do when they're thinking about new sketches or new funny bits? They went to the library. Yeah. Because the Pythons do research. So they read the Gospels. They read the Dead Sea Scrolls. They read other historical documents. They read histories. They watched all the epics. They love historical epics. Right. And the conclusion they came up with was, Jesus is a good guy. Yeah. And he's not that funny. Like, they don't want to make fun of someone who is preaching love and peace and the things that they actually believe in. Yeah. He's a good guy. 
And so they said, we cannot make a comedy about Jesus, which is ironic considering all the controversy when this movie came up because mm-hmm. they everyone felt they had made a comedy about Jesus, which right. they didn't. It was about people. It was about people Yeah, in response to Jesus. Yes. That's where they found the comedy. Um, and, and one of the things that has, they're watching all these historical epics. Terry Jones went, man, why is it that all the people in these epics talk in a certain way? They always talk, we shall come to the land of the sacred light that rises above, like, as and what he said is it's like they're talking as if they know that something very important is happening right near them and someone might recording be recording them so they have to say it in just the right way <laughs> and one of the first ideas is people talk like people yeah and even if it's in ancient jerusalem at the time of jesus they're still talking like people they still got to go to work they still got to eat they still get yeah you know angry and irritated and they miscommunicate people are people and that is one of the first core thematic pieces of humor within Life of Brian. Yeah. And, and Michael Palin said it this way. He, when he would read history, it was completely not understandable to him. Mm-hmm. And the only way he could get into it was to ask, what would I have done? You know, working on the assumption that people are people is what allowed Michael Palin to get into this world. And because you work on that assumption again in there, well, when you write the characters, they're going to come out that way. And as you said, it's the people, it's the followers of Christ, it's the Romans. It's of any all, religion. Of any religion really. that they yeah. were really interested in. I think they skewer every religion you could possibly have. And right at the end, they skewer even the monks, the Buddhist monks. And I think it's brilliant. Oh, yeah. All of it. Well, and and they and it's, and honestly, it's not just skewering religion. It's skewering any follower of anything. Fair. Political movements. Absolutely. Any, they're going right. And, well, and this is the interesting thing about Life of Brian as compared to everything else, is that Python, at their essence, is a sketch comedy group. Yes. And so you look at, obviously, the TV show. It's a sketch which flows into another sketch, into another sketch, often connected you know, through the genius of Terry Gilliam's animation, right. but frequently through nothing else. And even though Grail is all set in one place and we have certain characters that repeat, there's not really a story. Yeah. You know, we don't have character development or things that we're worried about. It's like, well, let's go see the Knights of Say Knee or let's see right. the Constitutional Peasant. Or let, and they're all sketches connected with a, a, a single era and characters. Yeah. Life of Brian, meaning life is back to the TV show. Yeah. Life of Brian's a movie. Mm-hmm. It's a story, and it's really all about one thing. Well, I think that's why it's a. Um, I think that's what speaks volumes about the fact that it was one director. It was Terry Jones directing right. this thing, all of them, all the way through. So there's not battling philosophies about what they're trying to do. So the fact that it's a, in essence, a more cohesive movie, even though it does at times feel like a string of sketches, it is still a cohesive movie, right. more so than Holy Grail. More, uh, Holy Grail does have that narrative of Arthur trying to find his Right, we know Arthur's trying to find the Grail. The Grail, that's, that's true, but then there's all these weird instances they get into, whereas this, this skewers more towards reality and, right. and uncomfortably so at times that it makes it feel like a movie about something. Right. Right. There are things you are worried about. There yeah. are things the character wants. Yes. The first story they wanted to do was Brian, the 13th Apostle. <laughs> That'd be good. It's good, too. But that didn't go anywhere. And then they started, they all, it sounds like they all, because they write separately. So so, mm. so uh, Terry Jones and Michael Palin have written together since Oxford. And Graham Chapman and John Cleese have written together since Cambridge. Right. Eric Idle tends to write alone or sort of bop between the two groups. And Terry Gilliam does his animation and does his work alone. And so they all started working separately and strangely enough while working separately they all came back to this idea of brian the person who 
we everyone thinks is the Messiah, but is not. And, and and then Eric Idle, who's hanging out in Barbados with Mick Jagger and George Harrison and Keith Moon, as you do, <laughs> said, hey, guys, why don't you come here? So all of them came down to Barbados together, and they actually wrote together as a group, which they really had never done before. Right. What they had done is written sketches and then brought their sketches in, and they'd worked on each other's sketches. But they actually sat, and they – I love Python because they kept like banker's hours. Yeah, Nine to 12, we write. 12 to 2, we go to the beach and party. Apparently, Keith Moon is sitting on the beach going, when are they going to get here? <laughs> and then there was drinking and partying. And then 2 until 6, they would write. And then drinking and partying and craziness all night. And Graham Chapman is going off after hookups. And all that stuff is happening. Right. And then you know, and then there's Jagger and George Harrison and all these other people running through. But during the day, they actually sat and worked. And I think the fact that they were doing that together is part of what makes this such a cohesive movie. Yeah. Um, one, one sad story is that Keith Moon is going to be in it and he had gotten a part and he was working on his lines and he came to Eric Idle and said, I got my lines all memorized and he was sober and the next day he died. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so sad. Well, um, only push your body so far. Yep. And they're getting financing because Holy Grail is a big success. So they got financing from EMI. Everything's ready to go. They got their locations in Tunisia. They've got costumes. Sets are being built. They're ready to get on the plane. It's Thursday. They get on the plane on Sunday. And the president of EMI reads the script. Yes. Finally. <laughs> and he says, and he thought there was just going to be some zany antics. He said, we can't make a, I can't make fun of Jesus Christ. And EMI pulled all their money. Now there's nothing. Right. And the hero of this is George Harrison. George Harrison. Speaking of the Beatles. Speaking of the Beatles. Yeah. He and what what uh, uh, Eric Idle said is he said George Har George said he was willing to put up a million pounds for no other reason than that he wanted to see the movie. Yeah. That is most expensive movie ticket in history. <laughs> well, so without I'm George sure Harrison, there's nothing. Yeah. One last thing I want to talk about is casting, which is. So we have we still have to cast a movie, even though these guys are going to play all these different parts. And at this point, John Cleese wanted to play Brian. Oh, and what? and what's so interesting is that not only did all of them say no because they had really discovered in Grail that Graham Chapman actually yeah can play the lead. Yes, he knows how to play a lead. Is that they all said no, and John Cleese went okay, and John Cleese says they were right. Yeah. You know, like that's that great. We're going to have the conflict. The other thing that uh, Cleese said that I like is he said the interesting thing about the Pythons is that they think of themselves as 70 percent writers mm. and 30 percent performers. Right. Yeah. And what he said is that as writers, what their primary interest is, is that somebody plays their part and does it justice. Right. Not necessarily that they get to get their screen time. Right. And so the, he said casting was actually in general pretty easy mm. that's like oh no terry jones is gonna be best for that he should right. play that part oh this is definitely a michael palin thing yeah you know that there wasn't a lot of conflict over who got to play what other than conflict with cleese and graham chapman about who's gonna play brian yeah would you like to get into the movie let's do it you know they watched all these religious epics this starts like a religious epic There's the star, there's the three wise men, there's the religious music that rises up. Yeah. The three wise men go through this beautiful sort of, you know, village area, which is beautifully lit. And this is one of 
only two or three things that were directed by Terry Gilliam. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because they look great. And you can yeah. tell, you know, because what they discovered is that Terry Gilliam is going to spend way more time on lighting and sets and the look of things and less time on the comedy. Right. And that's why Terry Jones is the director of this movie. <laughs> um, and they arrive at a manger. This is very familiar to us. This is, we know exactly what's going to happen. And they say, we're three wise men. And of course, as soon as they walk in, the woman, Terry Jones, falls down because she is really surprised by this. (laughs) Who are you? We are three wise men. What? We are three wise men. Well, what are you doing creeping on the car shed at two o'clock in the morning? That doesn't sound very wise to me. And they say they're there to, to praise the infant and to pay homage. And she's trying to get rid of him until... Well, we must see him. We have brought presents. Oh! Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Well, why didn't you say he's over there? Sorry the place is a bit of a mess. What's myrrh? <laughs> it's a bomb. That's an animal. <laughs> yeah, all, all, well, first of all, is is does two thirty even exist back then? So I thought no. that was great anachronistic <laughs> in that way, but also the idea of I mean Mother Mary being this way. Do you know what I'm saying? This is a great introduction. It's also I didn't notice, and this is the first time I've noticed as I watched this movie. Cleese is in blackface. Oh yeah, it didn't even occur to me yep. in other times when I'd watched it. But he is in blackface. But of course he's covered up, so it's you know this is a different situation. But like her reaction to them, and then their reaction to her. Like just taking all these hits, and they—you can tell—they're like occasionally looking at her like she's a little stupid, and just like what the, you know, and they just want to get to the baby, and then it takes only a couple of seconds or five seconds after they leave, and they figure out they're in the wrong place, yeah, and come storming back, and I think it's brilliant what happens after they come storming back. Well, this is one of the key things: is that Brian is a person mistaken for yeah, Jesus, right? He is not actually Jesus, and they very clearly separate. The real Jesus is over there. Yeah. You know, they're not making fun of of Mother Mary. No, not at all. They're making fun of this lady. Yeah. And I love some of the jokes of like, oh, you're an astrologist. What sign he is? Well, he's a Capricorn. Capricorn. Like, <laughs> um, and yeah. where are you, you know, we're going to praise him. Oh, you must be doing a lot of praising. It's like, no, just for him. He is the Messiah. <laughs> you do this sort of thing a lot? <laughs> yeah. All of that. Yeah. But also, and then when they come back and grab back their gifts, they uh, shove her in the face. <laughs> shove her in the face. <laughs> love it. Interesting. Moment. Love it. By the way, the shot of the actual Jesus with the halos in the major that's so beautiful. That's shot by Terry Gilliam. Yeah, of course. Yeah. With the halos plastered oh, yeah. onto their heads. Or yeah. attached on. But also, this is the beginning of these subtle shots that he is taking at people who believe in religion. Right? These people who came in to praise God, praise the Son of Jesus. Oh, sorry, the Son of God is Jesus and all this. The second they realize they're in the wrong place, they go back to who they really are, take that gold, and then shove her in the face. It's this, these shots throughout the whole film, in my opinion, he is taking shots at people who who pretend or who act to be religious when it's the situation is called upon, but when they're not acting religious or acting in a place of faith or whatever, they revert back to who they really are. And I found this to be fascinating as I watched the movie throughout these subtle little moments. This is the thing is that this is a very controversial movie. It is controversial to this day. Mm -hmm. It is still banned in certain places. That's insane. And to me, it's like, Saying negative things about someone's particular religion, I understand why that's controversial. Right. Saying that people who are claimed to be religious do not behave up to the ideals, the the standards that they claim to believe in, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's controversial at all. Well, no, we don't because we're self-aware people, but a lot of people do because they don't like to be made fun of. They don't like to have it exposed to them how the hypocritical nature of their actual behavior versus the thing they tell themselves inside their heads of how great they are for praising Jesus or whatever. 
Here's a good test. We see it all the time. I'm going to see if I can articulate this the right way. Here's a test. Don't think about it as, if if you're offended by this thing, don't think about it as that they're poking fun of people within my religion. Mm -hmm. Think about it as they're poking fun of people in the other one. Okay, so if like you go, okay, you don't want to believe that anyone who firmly believes in your thing could be hypocritical, but let's say you're a Protestant looking at the Catholics or Catholic looking at the Protestants or a Protestant looking at a Muslim or a Jew looking at a whatever. Like if you can't poke your finger over there and say, come on, some of those people are are not doing what, then that, because that's what this movie is about. Okay, you don't want to see it pointed at yourself. And, but here's the thing. This movie's basic philosophy is people are people. And if a vast organization of another religion, you can perceive that there might be hypocrites within that organization, then you must logically acknowledge the fact that there must be hypocrites within your own. Yes, of course. So it started as a test, and then it just started me pointing fingers at other people. (laughs) That's how it goes, John. Yes, I know. That's how this is going to go today. All right. Um, (laughs) And of course, the last moment after she has lost her frankincense, myrrh, and gold, and they've gone away, what does she do? Slaps the baby. Slaps the baby. (laughs) By the way, no babies were harmed (laughs) in the making of this film. And then we go right into the Terry Gilliam montage or opening credits, (laughs) which I love these opening credits. I love it. It sounds like like Shirley Bassey singing Goldfinger. Yes, it does. It right? seems like a Bond song. Brian! And what I love is if you listen to the lyrics, it's all about Brian going through puberty and yeah. wanting to get laid and a man called Brian. It's so... it's They did exposition in the opening credits. Totally. Because the next shot of Brian, of, we get of Brian, is Brian's a full-on adult. So throughout the opening credits, Brian is growing up. It's brilliant. Oh, yeah. And... and there is nothing like Terry Gilliam animation. Oh, yeah. You know, as much as I have mixed feelings about Terry Gilliam as a director, sure. there's some directors Certainly. that I, some films of his I love and some mm-hmm. films not so much. I have no mixed feelings of Terry Gilliam as an animator. Yeah. Like the things that he does is just like nothing else that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. Like these found photographs. And he's taking all these Roman ruin, ruins and inverting them and flipping them and stretching them and doing all these strange things. They're flying in and going out and everything moves together and things are collapsing yeah. and characters are rising and it's really funny. Uh, it's just amazing. It's irreverent. Oh, but, yeah. But brilliantly so. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I did have to look it up because it sounded so like Shirley Bassey to me. It's not Shirley Bassey. It is a 16-year-old girl named Sonia Jones wow. singing this song. Wow. It's awesome, right? It is. And we cut to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Arguably the most important, beatific, profound moment in Christianity. Yeah. And I can totally see if you are a religious person, a Christian person watching this movie at this moment yeah. that you're going... What are they going to do? Right, primed, I think, to be offended. Sure, and with, and I would say with good reason. And we could compare this to another film we've done. Ben Hur also has the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. also seen from a distance. Also, and it's you know, and also a film in which Jesus exists but on the periphery. Yeah, and I am sure they thought about Ben Hur when they made this. Mm-hmm. And then we have the scene of the pilgrims climbing up the hill to go to hear the words of Jesus. Right, you want to know how how they got this shot? Oh. <laughs> 
Well, it wasn't in the shot list. It wasn't in the plan. Uh. Here's what happened. Around three or four in the afternoon, all the Tunisian extras they shot in Tunisia, most of them were women because they weren't working to the day. Mm -hmm. They left because they had to go home and start making food for their family who was going to come home. And Terry Jones is freaking out, and he yells at the ADs and yells, get them back, get them back. And so all the ADs start yelling and get them back, and all of them start walking up the hill. Uh. And they look and go, get the camera rolling. <laughs> so it's just all the extras walking back to the set. That is what that shot is. That's perfect. Yeah, it's great. By the way, I think, and that may be out of bounds, and maybe there's an interview where they confirm this or deny this, but it's funny to me, the Jesus in this film mm -hmm. which is only like a few like a yeah, minute very or, brief if, if that um looks very similar to the south park jesus the bigger oh. forehead the stringier hair hmm. and i wonder if that's trey parker and matt stone's kind of homage to life of brian by having a jesus that kind of looks like this jesus i can't imagine that they don't love this movie yeah i right? mean and love python yeah i mean south, I wonder. yeah i mean south park I mean, they're they're in that tradition, literally. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's totally irreverent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as we hear little bits of the Sermon on the Mound, the camera pulls back and back and back, and now we're with a group of people and they can't hear. Speak up! Quiet, mom. Well, I call you a thing. Which is the Ben Hur thing? Because remember when he's with totally that's what I was with thinking uh, about. Nicodemus, or yeah, I think he's way in the back here yeah. with the tree, and you're like, how could you possibly hear what he's saying? And it's brilliant. Once again, the comedy is brilliant because it's real life, situational, and you understand that that actually probably would happen. Of course, of course. Well, that's what I love about it. <laughs> is that how do, how did they hear? Yeah, right. How did we hear what that guy said? Exactly. And we get into this argument where some where. We're calling someone Big Nose. I think it's Eric Idle is calling Michael Palin Big Nose, and yeah. his wife is defending, and then this other people, and people are like, no, I'm trying to listen. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. <laughs> <laughs> and right there, that is the beginning of a theme we're going to hear throughout, which is the misinterpretation, yeah. the confident misinterpretation of what actually was said right and what things actually mean yeah um and that man this nose stuff is going on and on and that Big guy's nose. getting yeah. getting mad and and brian steps in there's brian graham chapman we see him for the first time and the guy who's insulting noses, well, he insults Brian's nose. You got a big conk on your head or whatever he calls it. <laughs> and finally, the guy maybe seven times says, you say that one more time, I'm going to punch you. You say it one more time, one more time. Says it one more time. And the guy's wife steps in front and he punches the woman in the right. nose. Because these are the jokes. Right. These are the jokes. Um, in the meantime, the mom, the whole time the mom wants to go to the stoning. She does yeah. not want to be here at the Sermon on the Mount. She wants to go to the stoning. Well, listen, if you wanted to see, like, let's say, you know, a lecture yeah or an action film right a lot of people are going to want to go see the action probably yeah so she wants to go to the stoning and they head off just as the fight breaks out mm. and we call the romans over for help and we also get our and and graham chapman looks over and we're in a close-up and his eyes lock on what's clearly the most beautiful woman he's ever seen yeah judith who is with John Cleese and these other people dressed in dark, and they have a very different reaction to the Sermon on the Mount. John Cleese says, Yeah, well, what Jesus blatantly fails to appreciate is it's the meek who are the problem. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> right, of course. Questioning the religion, right? It's ironic because we see it happening now, this idea of like, well, what did he really mean? He didn't right. really mean 
the poor. He meant people who are trying and can't get there. But you got to be trying. You got to be trying not to be poor. Right. Then I can love you or try to appreciate what you're doing. But if you're not trying, and it's like, no, God is saying everyone i was saying the meek shall inherit the i love what the wife says oh that's nice they, they don't nice. get they don't, they don't get, much. get much the meek <laughs> the meek <laughs> well this is this is i mean this is what this movie is going to be and it's not like is that we're going to get interpretations right that are that are self-serving and based on the, whatever people want to think at that moment right and by the way and i want to say this because steve said this at the beginning like the warning and everything like that what we're talking about and addressing is what's in the movie. We're not saying everyone who believes in religion is this way. We're not saying in mass generalization. It is more that there are people, there are factions, and sometimes large factions, depending on your religion, who, who act certain ways that are being skewered in this movie, and rightfully so. And yep. so that's that's so I want to make sure that's clear that we're not because I'm a religious person now, but we're not skewering religious people. Well, and I'm not a religious person, right. and yet something I've said has come up several times now on the podcast mm-hmm. is that Jesus is one of my heroes. Yes. His teachings, his belief in compassion and caring and turn the other cheek, love your enemy, you know, right. he without sin, throw the first stone, all of those ideas, those are things I try to live by. Those are damn good ideas. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so like I would never skewer the person of Jesus or the philosophy or even someone who is trying to live by that truth yeah but a religious person who is a murderer i got no problem skewering right you know what i mean right or taking the words of jesus and twisting them in terrible terrible ways mm-hmm. i don't have a problem like going at that or trying to profit off of them yeah or trying to profit off them which is definitely you know jesus in the marketplace in yes. jerusalem yes. like these are the things that he was clearly against yeah the money lender and the and you know how much money has been made off the name of jesus right. in in the last couple thousand years Man, you go to the Vatican and you look around, there's a lot of gold, man. There's a lot of beautiful paintings. There's a lot of statues. There's a lot of jewels. There's a lot of nice stuff there. I'm, I'm just going to let you sit with that. I'm look, cool. I'm not commenting on that one. <laughs> look. You know. I get it. I, you're welcome tw- to I'm Twitter you're... at SR Morris. Anyone right. would like to talk to me about All this. Right. Um, <laughs> let's head off to a stoning. I'm not messing with the Vatican. Yeah, let's head off to a stoning. <laughs> Uh, we're off at a stoning, and of course, women are not allowed to stoning, which is something that uh, that John Cleese and Graham Chapman found in their research. Yep, and that in item led them to a joke, which is brilliant. <laughs> just got to get some beards. I mean, the mom walking in with a beard, trying to put it <laughs> on and everything like that—it's just genius. It's so funny. Well, and there's like a moment where you know we got Eric Idle selling stones. You know, they're like, "I want the flat stone." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because and well, this is the thing: it's like, okay, this is really ridiculous and silly, mm-hmm. except. That at this time, and really for thousands of years, both before and after, public execution was an entertainment. Right. You know, whether you're at the the hangings, whether you're at William Wallace at the time of Braveheart, you know, that's 12, 1300 years later. Right. And yet there's still crowds of people who are at the execution. So like the so even though, yeah, it's ridiculous this guy's selling good stones or selling beards. It's not that ridiculous. Right. The other thing is just a moment where there's a woman carrying a donkey. Yeah. <laughs> and this comes from something they did in the TV show, which is Python doesn't want any empty moment. Yeah. They're going to fill something with something in the background or some character doing something weird. They want to be so filled with jokes and even just visual strangeness so that you never really rest. Right. Which is a person who was trying to type out every single thing that happened in this movie. This was really hard. <laughs> I had to type a lot. We're at the stoning. Mathias, son of Deuteronomy of Gath. Well, I say yes. 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 Uh, this scene was written by uh, Graham Chapman and John Cleese. 
You have been found guilty by the elders of the town of uttering the name of our Lord. And so as a blasphemer. And we got an old guy. This person has to be stoned to death. He says, look, I had a lovely supper. And all I said to my wife was that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. (laughs) (laughs) And for those of you, you were not in the Jewish religion, not supposed to actually say the name of God out loud. Yeah. Um, And there are various other ways to say his name, but he says it. And this is a stoning offense. And the women scream. (laughs) I love John Cleese's reaction. Are there any women here today? <laughs> no. No. No, 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 no. And they're all front line. I love that front all line. the women are on the front line. Well, and they really debated about whether or not they could do this because this is a bunch of dudes, plain women, pretending to be men. Mm-hmm. This is like the Victor Victoria of Monty Python. Oh, yeah. And they were like, is this too far? And then they probably <laughs> went, no, we could do this. This old guy who's getting who's about to get stoned... Yeah, is hilarious. His oh, yeah. timing is just as good as anybody in Monty Python in this scene. And like Monty Python, he plays multiple parts. In the, yeah, in yeah the he movie, does. You're know? right. He like, does. Like, and it's really funny. Like the idea that we're just going to play 27 different roles. Yeah, it never bothers me. No. And there are times where I like I have to remind myself, like, oh, that's Michael Palin again, right? You know, or oh, that's Terry. Terry Jones is the one I find hardest to spot. Well, I think he kept himself purposefully out of the movie as much right. as possible so he could direct it. But with Eric Idle, I mean, at the end with the crucifix, Eric Idle's literally taken off the crucifix, and, and then, then he's, he's right, right there. there behind a different Eric Idle's right there behind. So yeah, um, and, and now the joke becomes the word Jehovah. Jehovah. I don't think it ought to be blasphemy. Just saying Jehovah. <laughs> making it worse for yourself. Making it worse. How could it be worse? Jehovah, Jehovah, Jehovah. I'm warning you. If you say Jehovah once more. Because, like, well, he said Jehovah, stone that person. Now, look, no one is to stone anyone until I blow this whistle. Do you understand? Even, and I want to make this absolutely clear, even if they do say Jehovah. <laughs> and, then they stone, and then they stone John Cleese. And the big rock, which is, of course, <laughs> the great The ridiculous the little level. Um, so, so this is the very first scene they shot. Oh, and they were so unlike Grail. They were so organized. They were so rehearsed. They were so planned out. Yeah, they finished by two o'clock. Wow. Yeah, John Cleese went off and swam in the pool. <laughs> it was yeah. so happy. Yeah. Well, it, it, and the thing, one thing that we should point out is that people think that all comedians are improvisers. Right. Right. Not Python. They wrote everything in the most detail. They they worked out all the jokes. They, they had to fight with each other to make sure they were the best possible jokes at the best moment. Yeah. They rehearsed it, and when they got on the set, that's what they did. Well, it's like you said. They're 70% writers, 30% performers. Exactly. So the writing is the most important thing to them. Right. We cut to a giant statue with Michael Palin's face, which is made out of, you know, foam. You know, it's made out of styrofoam or something. And the camera kind of zooms in on Mom and Brian, who are walking through, and then zooms back out, revealing the city with some crucifixions going on in front. and Skeletons hanging on. Skeletons hanging, yeah. And this is all locations that were used by Zeffirelli for Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, wow. Not only that, most of the costumes are from Jesus of Nazareth. They took every single thing they could find. They had a- ADs and people that had worked on Jesus of Nazareth oh who regularly told Terry Jones, Mr. Zeffirelli would not have done this this way. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I haven't seen that movie in forever. Really? Yeah. It's a staple of mine. I'm sure. Because Dad and I watched, I mean, every Easter, that's what you watch, right. Jesus of Nazareth. You did a Ben-Hur, Jesus of Nazareth Basically, Yeah, because it was always on TV, right? Because right. back then, it would show on the prime yeah. channels, like on ABC or CBS or NBC. You watched it. And then, of course, it came out in, on DVD and, and uh, VHS. And we owned it that way, too. And that guy is in Braveheart. He gets his head cut off. In Braveheart, he's the guy that gets. His, oh, really? Jesus is the guy that gets his, the sacking of oh, York. Oh, yeah. That's the character who played Jesus. I did not remember. Yeah. That. yeah. So it's it's so uh, that is still one of the greatest ones I've ever seen. So is it a not. cinephile? Oh, it's a TV movie, but we could do it. It's but it's just like eight hours. It's eight hours. It's eight hours. Yeah. I don't have the. I was gonna say it's a long know. one. I mean, we did a twelve-hour Civil War. I don't know if I have a yeah eight-hour. Maybe I should do that one. Yeah. <laughs> Eight hours. You could do it, you do it just, a, it's going to be like a John telethon. Yeah, just, you should do a commentary track uh, yeah, um, just, on camera. Not a bad idea. Yeah. This is going to be new. Go to my YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. Suggest commentary go. track. That's what you got to do. Arms for a leper. Arms for a leper. Arms for an I don't love this scene. What? I, but I love the idea of the scene. A, I think. Oh right, okay. You know right. what I mean? Yes. I think the idea is hilarious. Yes. I don't understand why Michael Palin is bouncing up and down through the whole scene. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a good. Well, I think he's imitating maybe a beggar in modern day England at that time. Maybe people know. who did that kind of thing, but, dancing in and out or whatever. But the joke is, he looks perfectly healthy. Yes. And he's saying alms for an ex leper. Yeah. Because Jesus healed him. And of course, he's pissed at Jesus yeah, because of. that was his profession. Right. And now he can't make a good living because nobody gives money alms to an ex lover. <laughs> I think that is so brilliant. You can go deeper into this. It may not be there, but you can go deeper into this as some people like if you take away the thing they most complain about and actually heal them or cure them of it or take it away from their lives and make the, they they don't know what to do with themselves. I think it's a great point. Yeah. I I actually I don't think that is too deep. I yeah. I think this is a great point about the human condition. It's also just the the grass is always greener yes. and the and the like at the minute some one thing's taken away, we're going to have a new thing to complain about. Right. We'll always find a new thing to complain about. Yes, human beings do. Yeah. By the way, there's a great moment after he finally rejects this guy's and won't give him the 18 shekels or whatever it is that he wants, that he dances away and he there's some like uh, manure yeah, or something yeah. on the ground and he does a little dance around it, which is really, really funny. Well, the button is when he says, yeah, that's the button I see, but when he says right before he says to him, what does he say? Uh, you know, some people are never satisfied or whatever. And he goes, that's exactly what Jesus that's said. That's exactly what Jesus said. <laughs> I love it. So uh, I'm going to jump. I'm jumping the timeline a little bit. Okay. They're in the middle of post. The movie is heading towards a release and 11 pages of this script get uh, snuck out and handed to a woman named Mary Whitehouse, who is in charge of one of the big religious right organizations. Mary Whitehouse. Mary Whitehouse. What a great name. And she puts out a whole thing and says, pray for the failure of Brian. She goes to the uh, BBC. She goes to the British Film Commission. She goes everywhere and say, this film should be banned. It's sacrilegious. It's terrible. And this is what starts the movement against Brian, is sneaking out the leper scene. Not the scene, but right. the script. You know, And of course, out of context, we don't know. Th 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 those two opening moments of having the wise men leave the baby and go to find Jesus and being on the Sermon on the Mount and we can't hear them are, I think, the th two things that solidify 
we're not making this about Jesus. We're making this about Brian and about the other people around yeah, Jesus. Yeah. But Mary Whitehouse doesn't see that. And of course, I, I doubt she has much of a sense of humor. And that's what starts this whole controversy. Well, I, think she, I don't think she wanted to see it. I think no, this is, not. once again, using Jesus to make yourself yeah. popular or make yourself money. And this is what a lot of religious people do is purposefully take, or I mean, leaders of organizations do is purposely take stuff out of context on purpose to foment the rage of their people, get people to join them or donate more money or whatever. It's it's a constant thing that happens now. I mean, we just saw Trump's religious leader, that woman, say that she's praying for the death of the uh, these people that are having the babies and or aborting the babies. You're just like, or it's like, what's wrong with you? Like, why would you even say something well, like she that? Is- you know, a very wealthy person yeah, who has made is. a lot of money off of religion. People, I just, it's its just mind-blowing to me all the time how willingly, and this is, this goes back to what Brian says later to all of them when they're standing outside of his uh, window and apartment, but, but we'll... Well, and, and, and one of the themes of this movie, which relates to Mary Whitehouse, is that she has a rigid, specific idea mm-hmm. of exactly what the teachings of religion and Christianity should be, right. and anything that deviates from that remotely must be stopped. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we're going to see that in this movie, right. when it comes to a, a shoe and a gourd and things like that. Because you're threatening my money. Don't threaten my money. They are threatening the money. Yep. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there, the Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. We go home. There is like a Roman centurion in there. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I totally forgot about this when I watched it again so, for this podcast. And I was like, oh, oh, that's right. It's so funny. It's played so low, really. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because Brian starts off just asking about his big nose and, you know, and and hating the Romans. And then she says, well, you know, your father isn't Mr. Cohen. I love that his name is Brian. Bri- I mean, Brian is one thing for, you know, an early Israelite. But, but Brian Cohen is awesome. Your father isn't Mr. Cohen. I never thought he was. No, not of your cheek. He was a Roman, Brian. He was a centurion in the Roman army. You mean you were raped? Her response, well, at first. At first. The character, I think Terry Jones's character of this mom is one of the most developed. Yeah. And like has a through line through the whole movie. She has her own internal life. Yeah. Yeah. And he asked what his name was, and the name was Nadius Maximus. <laughs> 
And then there's she, and then, and then Jerry Jones steps into a close-up and with sort of a dreamy look in her yeah. face says, Promise me the known world, Edith. I was to be taken to Rome, passed by the form, slaves, asses, milk, as much gold as I could eat. I love the line, as much gold as I can eat. That's a classic, like, nonsensical Python yeah. line that just sort of flows by. you like, wait, w- what did she say? Then he having his way with me, and boom, like a rat out of an aqueduct. The bastard. That is the most maternal of birth stories, like a rat out of an aqueduct. Yes, yeah, so next time you go on about the bloody Romans, don't forget you're one of them. And then he says... And as a Jewish man, I can say this. He yeah. says, I'm not a Roman. I'm a kike, a yid, a hebe. A hook-nose. I'm kosher, mom. I'm a Red Sea pedestrian. I'm proud of it. Yeah. I've never heard Red Sea pedestrian. <laughs> no one has. A Red Sea pedestrian is so brilliant. Because the first time, just, it just rolled by me. It took a while for me and went like, oh, he's talking about Moses and yeah. crossing the Red Sea. <laughs> this, that is so funny. It's brilliant. And of course, having what's so Graham Chapman, who is in his forties, is playing a character that's like in his late teens, and is as not Jewish looking a guy as you could imagine. (laughs) And yet, you know, I much like Eli Wallach. Mm. He is now an honorary Jew. I think so. Yeah, Um, Eli Wallach, not an honorary Jew. He's a real Jew. But if you listen to our magnificent seven, you would know that he is an honorary Latino. Yeah, Um, and he exits. Uh, and then she says, sex, 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 sex. That's all they think about. And then uh, that was my That's best. Good. That was my best version of that. And then he, she turns to the Roman guy who's been there just silently the whole time and says, how are you, officer? And then kneels down in front of him. Mm. And then we cut. Yo, it's good. So I think we've said something about her profession. Right. That is... <laughs> But she's a proud woman. No, no, strong, she's proud a woman. Proud woman who knows, she's a survivalist. Yeah. She knows what she needs to do to survive in yep. this. And, and and by the way, in Jewish tradition, if your mother is Jewish, you're Jewish. Oh uh, yeah, that is right. good. And, point. You know, there's good reasons for that. Yeah. You could tell. There's no confusion about who someone's mother is. <laughs> you can have a lot of confusion about dad. Who do you think Mr. Cohen is? <laughs> I mean, well, okay. I think he's the landlord. So what? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> right. So one of the one of the places that uh, and some people might find this offensive, but one of the places that this whole movie started was from John Cleese, and John Cleese would tell this story. Can you imagine Joseph going into the pub the night after Mary told him right. she was pregnant? Oh, you know, oh Joseph, honey, I'm pregnant, but it was it's not yours because God came. And I'm still avert, you know, like oh. God came and that's where it is. Yeah. And Joseph explaining to all his buddies, like, no, it's really cool. Yeah. I'm not cuckolded because it was God. Um, and Cleese finds that hilarious. And that's sort of, yeah, you know, what stuff we're playing with right now. Exactly. So Mr. Cohen, you know, because <laughs> does he know that Brian's not his kid? Right. <laughs> We're at a Coliseum, the Jerusalem Coliseum. This was shot in Carthage. Mm. And I love that it says children's matinee. (laughs) And part of the reason they did that was they didn't have enough extras to fill it. So they had to come up with a joke for why it was sort of empty. Oh, that makes sense. (laughs) We're picking up some body parts. We hear an announcer. I think it's Frank Goliath. Frank Goliath, the Macedonian baby crusher. Brian's selling some ridiculous snacks, which also comes from research. 
because Cleese was doing research into Roman feasts and read things about them eating like nightingale tongues. Ooh. And he was going like, how many nightingales had to die right. for a Roman feast? And that's where this <laughs> joke comes from. And now we see Reg again. That's John Cleese in a different character. Yeah. This is with the bill. This is the people's Judea. I don't remember which one it is. The Judean people. It's not the Judean people's not, front. Those, they come at the end. The People's Front of Judea. The People's Front of Judea. Yeah, right. I do feel, Reg, that any anti-imperialist group like ours must reflect such a divergence of interest within his power base. We see uh, Judith, which is the beautiful woman that he, that uh, Brian has fallen in love with. But I don't know if they ever say it. Do you know what her full name is? No. Judith Iscariot. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so much sense. It's great, right? <laughs> Judith's sister, of course. It's Judith's sister. Just involved in a whole separate <laughs> storyline with yeah. a separate savior. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Judith's point of view is very valid, Ray. Provided the movement never forgets that it is the unalienable right of every man or woman, or woman to rid himself or herself. Or herself. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Or sister. Or sister. Do you know how topical this is in That's 2020, man? Too. It's just, I was watching this going, holy crap, this fucking works even more so now in 2020. Because Eric Idle, whose name is Stan, yeah. this has decided that he wants to be a woman named Loretta. Yes. And Loretta. <laughs> you want to know why the name is Loretta? No. One of their buddies is Marty Feldman. That's his wife's name. <laughs> that makes so much sense. Yeah. By the way, Terry Jones, one of the last plays he did was a play about the life of Marty Feldman. Oh, wow. I think it's called Jeepers Peepers. Oh, I need to find that. <laughs> I would think so, too. I love Marty Feldman. Me, too. He was in the Yellowbeard, the one that Chapman did right after. Oh. Yeah, right after he got out of Python. Yeah. Wow. Remember that. I think I've seen it. Yeah. I think I've seen it. Yeah. She's Loretta, she, Loretta, being uh, Eric Idle, says, I want to have babies. And John Cleese says, you want to have babies? <laughs> it's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies. Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus going to just take? You're going to keep it in a box? And it's funny watching this because I can't decide. You know, we know so much more about trans rights. And, yeah. and, and so many people that I know are dealing with these issues and dealing with issues with their children and things like that. So I take all of this really, really seriously. Yep. And so I try to go like, well, how do I feel today? How would I feel then? And then I just thought it was funny. Right. You know, and how do I feel today? Because what he's poking at is, it, is that this person in the, in the world of the movie is delusional. Right. But also that the, the, the political organization is now going after something that doesn't any, make any more sense. Because what Judith suggests is... Suppose you agree that he can't actually have babies, not having a womb, which is nobody's fault, not even the Romans, but that he can have the right to have babies. Good idea, Judith. We shall fight the oppressors for your right to have babies, brother. Sister. And so while I think that this is in today's world a very insensitive thing towards a person who is, you know, mm. feeling that their identity doesn't match their, uh, you know, their genetic makeup or whatever, like, I, I also think that poking at this, there's so many things where people are fighting for their right to a thing when the thing doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how many arguments have you had over big things and small things, whether it's at work and stuff like that? It's like, what are we fighting over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is the thing you're trying to get? You know, it is, and sometimes people will like, you know, put their put their flag on things that are so small and yeah. so meaningless. And I think, in that sense, what this is poking fun of is absolutely right. What's the point? What well, What's the point of fighting for his right to have babies when he can't have babies? 
It is symbolic of our struggle against oppression. And and by the way, if you watch Eric Idle in this scene, he's about to break. Yeah. Several times. I think that's why he dips yeah. his head down. Yeah. Dogs tongues, otters noses, ocelots spleens. Got any nuts? I haven't got any nuts, sorry. I've got wren's livers, badger spleens. No, no, no. Otters noses? I don't want that Roman rubbish. Why don't you sell proper food? Proper food? Yeah, not those rich imperialist tidbits. Oh, don't blame me. I didn't ask to sell this stuff. And he asked, is this the Judean People's Front? Fuck off. What? Judean People's Front. Well, the People's Front of Judea. And he looks at the girl and he goes, I want to join the group. I didn't want to sell this stuff. It's only a job. I hate the Romans as much as anybody. And here's the thing I want to point out. This is an actual character motivation that drives the movie. Yes. This is not, not Python doesn't normally do this. Right. Because they just jump to scene to scene. He saw the girl. He loves the girl. He finds out from his mom that he's a Roman. He denies that. He wants to be Jewish. Yeah. And now he has decided to join the group that the girl is in to fight against the Romans. This is like motivation. Yeah. Character development. This is like classic, classic stuff. Mm-hmm. Listen. If you wanted to join the PFJ, you'd have to really hate the Romans. I do. Oh, yeah? How much? A lot. Right, you're in. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, great test. Yep. Um, And then they say, listen, there's only one people we hate more than the Romans, and they are the fucking JPF. And the Judean popular people's front. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Split, 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 and the people's split. front of Judea. Yes. Splitters. Yes. The people's front of Judea. Splitters. We're the people's front of Judea. I thought we were the popular's front. No, we're the people's front. What happened to the popular front? Ah, uh, it's that guy over there. <laughs> <laughs> they point over to this one guy sitting alone. <laughs> um, Splitter, what, is it? what do they call him? Something like that? Splitter. Splitter, yeah. Um, and so what this all was, was in the seven, and it's funny, they, they were talking about it in England. I think it's just as true mm-hmm. in the U.S., is these left liberal organizations of the 70s that popped up all over the place. Of course. And the movie that made me think of is Network. Network, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because there were these, and you remember the scene in Network where they're having the org- argument about the contract. Right. It's exactly, uh, it could have been in Life of Brian. Don't fuck with my distribution. Yeah. I mean- and what, what this is what uh, Cleese says about it. He says the biggest party was the Socialist Worker Party, but yeah. there was a lot of other ones. There was Leninist and Trotskyites and Maoists and Trotsky Leninists, and they all hated each other. And they hated each other more than they hated the right. Right. And that's what this is really making fun of. And Cleese goes on to say everything they talked about was massively important but completely insignificant. Yeah. Uh, that's John Cleese. Yeah. Well, I mean, it happened here too. So many different movements popped up, and then there was anger within the movements. Then you have the PLO and the LPO and all there was all kinds yeah. of stuff that was going on around. It's always that mixture of things because people have to create an organization for something they care about. It's no other to do now. There's how many Facebook groups are there about any different narrative, any different things that are split within even sep- within a section, even split uh, to the most minute detail. Well, and as we record this. In Iowa, right now, are the caucuses. Right. And we have, what have we been hearing about for the last many, many months in the Democratic Party is who's the right one? Who's right. the one that's going to lead? Who's the, and they're all these people. No, it can't be that person. It can't be that right. person. And it's like. Right. And they're all fighting amongst themselves. Fighting amongst themselves. Which we'll see come to fruition later on in that scene where they're trying to steal, steal Pontius Pilate's wife. This idea that fighting amongst themselves is exactly what a larger uh, controlling majority of people want 
for the smaller groups that are trying to undercut it, foment division uh, or sow division rather within the smaller group so that they all battle each other and yep. can never organize to overthrow the larger group. It's it's basic science. I mean, it's basic philosophy, man. Yeah. And sad to watch. Yes. And but they say, you know, what's your name? He's Brian Conan. <laughs> like, we got a job for you. Yeah. Cut to it's late at night. We're at next to a wall, the Roman wall, and Brian's got a paintbrush and he's starting to paint someone, and then someone puts a hand on his back, and there's John Cleese as a centurion. What's this then? Romanes Aeon Domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. <laughs> And what we get, and I'm just going to play some of it, (laughs) is a Latin lesson because it's not that the Centurion wants to Centurion wants to arrest Brian. It's that he wants to correct his Latin. (laughs) Aunt, what is aunt? Go. Conjugate the verb to go. Here, uh, uh, it, it, it is. Aeon. So, Aeon is. Uh, uh, third person plural, a uh, present indicative. Uh, they go. But Romans go home is an order, so you must use the. Yeah, imperative. Which is. Um, 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 e, e. How many Romans? Do you know what John Cleese's job out of Oxford was? What? Teaching Latin. <laughs> this is all John Cleese. This is both his relationship to his, you know, yeah. masters that taught him, that pinched his ear and paddled him when he didn't do a declension or a, you know, whatever correctly or <laughs> conjugate the verb right. But right. it's also what he did. And the scene is, I mean, I don't speak Latin, but it's still really fun. Well, it's a dead language. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell Rush- Brian that. Don't tell Rushmore that. <laughs> and I love, I love, I love that. Um, that's right. I love that at the end, it's like, and you're going to write this a hundred times. Yeah, all over. And, and I'll cut your balls off if you don't have it yep. done by the morning. Cut to the morning. And it's well done. Yeah. There's different fonts. Yeah. Different sizes. It's very well. And of course, this is Terry Gilliam. Right. You know, oh, and this right. is a this is a this is a mat that's you know composited onto this. Totally brilliant. Here's what's here's what's really it. So this is a great Terry Gilliam story. So they they have the stone wall and and that and then they have this mat above it. But the stone wall really is an ancient wall in Tunisia. That's really right. where they were. And so they were not allowed to paint on the stone wall. So what they had to do was build another stone wall in front of the stone wall that they could do all the painting on. And so they they did that and they painted on it. But in order to attach the stone, the fake wood stone wall to the real stone wall, there was some gluey stuff. And when they took down the stone wall, it left a residue of like a grayish brown, oh. you know, layer. And they tried to wash it off and they couldn't get it to wash off. So they painted. Terry Gilliam had people sneak in in the middle of the night and paint the stone wall back to its oh, natural stone color and to this day he doesn't know if anybody knows <laughs> can tell yeah wow. uh it's morning we see jerusalem on the hillside silhouetted and that is just a model yeah. that is just like holy grail it's 12 <laughs> feet tall it's a cutout look my liege camelot 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 it's only a model uh, and Brian exhausted is still painting and he turns to the centurions and says, okay, I'm finished. And they go, right now, don't do it again. <laughs> and he goes away and then another centurion sees him and now they chase him. Yeah. And he runs to the market and he runs into Judith. She takes him and we cut to our people's wait. It's the people's front of Judea. Yeah. And they are talking about their plan, as you said before, to kidnap Pilate's wife. Yeah. Hey, let us what? 
state taking everything we had. And not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yours, don't lay with the point. I love this scene so much. And what have they ever given us in return? And there's a long pause. And then one guy says, The aqueduct? Aqueduct? What? The aqueduct? Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah, remember what the city was like before? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like in roads. Okay, well, of course the roads roads go without that's saying. That's a given. <laughs> <laughs> well, an irrigation, medicine, education, and wine. Oh, yeah, there's wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really misrated. The Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> Once again, the skewering of revolutionary groups, because yeah. how many times throughout history... Had revolutionary people throw overthrown a government and then fell into the same traps or worse that that government had uh, had done when they were in charge. The, cor- the treason, the corruption, the violence, all that jazz. Because they were only prepared to overthrow a government, they were to, they weren't prepared to run a city. We see it in Lawrence of Arabia as well when he finally gets to that to Aqaba and or where and they have that whole meeting with. Like, he can't control them. He doesn't know how to put them all together. Well, and what what I love is I love this on so many levels, and one of them is that John Cleese's basic politics are pretty left. Oh yeah, you know, but who is he skewering here? He's skewering yeah. the left. Yes, exactly. Okay, because what his a biggest objection is is hypocrisy. Yes. you know, is that in hypocrisy we can find in every direction. Nobody has a monopoly on hypocrisy, right. and John Cleese doesn't go well. I'm not going to skewer those guys because they're more my people. And and the thing and the other thing I love about this is that when we look at the empires or any bit of history, there's always complexity. Yeah. So they might have. I am sure that John Cleese were raised that his. Uh, most of us were raised. The Romans were like good guys, right, you know. Right, right. And yet, and then there's a certain point where you become more revolutionary. It's like, oh no, they were conquerors. And you look at it from this other perspective, and now the tendency is to flip everything in a binary sense and go, oh, the Romans were not good guys; right. they were bad guys. Right. And this is particularly to uh, again with the British Empire is that they're clearly conquerors. There's no question that they're not conquerors. Right. But then they also brought justice system, a, a modern bureaucracy, transportation, communication, all these things. Right. And so when you look at the Roman Empire or you look at you ha- what Cleese is doing is saying, no, we can't look at this simplistically. We have to look at it com- complexly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that we have to look at it from multiple sides. And anyone who just wants to paint it in a black and white way, he is going to skewer them. Well, I mean, we see it with uh, recently with Iraq when, you know, over the last few years when Saddam Hussein was taken out. Like things were still run. They weren't maybe being run the best, obviously, but there was still everything was running on time. You know, they talk about. Uh, they talk about Star Wars all the time. The Empire had the trains running on time, had the planes running on time, right. what have you. Were they so, but did we need to overthrow them? It's, it's all of that always every single time because once the, a certain uh, uh, once a certain uh, person or faction gets in charge and understands how to work the system and then overall things work smoothly, even though it leads to some human rights abuses and whatever, the, that's where it becomes complex is what is the exchange, you know? Well, the utopian ideal is obviously not having human rights abuses and everything runs correctly, but... 
And to be clear, I don't think either of you are are saying we are pro conquerors, pro Saddam oh, Hussein, or pro the Empire in no, Star Wars. No, no, but 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 the point is to say, like, no, these things are complex. Yeah, you know, especially and, with the Romans. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th- these are this is some very complicated stuff. Yeah, but as soon as they get into this on their plan, there's a knock on the door, which they immediately go and hide. Mm-hmm. Brilliant hiding places. Yeah. They're good hiders. And in and there's the old man who's obviously he's the front. It's his house. It is I think it's the same old I man think it's that the was the yeah. stoning guy. And in comes Judas with Brian and says it's all good. The first blow has been struck. Did he finish the slogan? A hundred times. In letters ten foot high, all the way around the palace. Oh great. So Brian has done something I don't think any of them did anything yeah. remotely as much as Brian just did himself. Right, right. Because they, as we will find out later, are all talk. We we need doers in our movement, Brian, but before you join us, know this. There is not one of us here who would not gladly suffer death to rid this country of the Romans once and for all. Uh, well, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's one. And then we go into the plan. And, you know, we hear the plan as we see them going off to break into the Roman place, to, to kidnap... Uh, Pilot's wife. Mm-hmm. We also see the Romans cleaning the graffiti off the wall, which I love. <laughs> and I love this line as they say that all of us are going to go in and risk our lives to do this thing. But uh, Reg will not participate. He has a bad back. Yeah, he has a bad back. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Oh yeah, it's like sending people into war when you don't go yourself. I also love the joke of as they're describing it. We enter the Caesar Augustus Memorial sewer. <laughs> That's great. And we hear tapping underneath the uh, Roman mosaic, and then the leaf that's in the crotch of the mosaic on the floor pops up, and our guys come through the floor. (laughs) One thing about this, the reason that this exists in this way is they did research on Roman uh, heating and cooling systems and discovered that the heating system would be under the floor, and that is why they did this. Oh, wow. It's a joke coming out of research. (laughs) Um, I like it. Uh, by the way, the set they enter, that's Franco Zeffirelli set. <laughs> um, and they come out of the hole and they're sneaking around. They have lanterns, which are clearly electric. They yeah. don't look like, like flame <laughs> in any way. And they run into uh, the Free Galilee Association. Oh, my God. And they have a weird accent, the Free Galilee people. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I guess because it's John Cleese and he was just yeah. in the previous scene. So okay. he's got to do a new accent. Um, and they get in an argument who had this idea first. And they end up getting into a big fight. Which is what happens. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So all they're the in the middle of the Roman compound. There are guards all around and they're fighting each other. Right. Which we see now. I mean, like, and I know we don't want to get too political, but like, you, we have to make the comparisons as people who are intelligent and logical and make connections here. This idea of Talib, uh, the representative Talib, who was going off on Hillary and encouraged people to boo her. Now, and then the next day, everyone's going after Talib for why would you do this? What, you know, but, but she's kind of got her feeling, but, and, and then she's apologizing for it or saying she got the the, uh, the 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 passion with which she was upset that the way Hillary attacked Bernie in her book uh, got the best of her. So you see this the smaller factions attacking each other, eating each other up, and in the long run, people aren't going to go for it. And that's just how it's built. Well, and I don't think this is a political thing at all because you could say exactly the same thing in 2016 with the Republican primary yes. and all of them going after You're each right, other. Right, like right. this is I mean our system is based on fight 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 fight. Right. It's, it's like what do you do when you're Ted Cruz who's been battling Donald Trump for a year and then you have to work with Donald Trump. It's right. a weird and I, again I'm not 
you know, everyone right. knows where my, both what sides. side of my I'm on, but it's both sides. This is how our systems work, and it's really, really ridiculous. Yeah. And of course, while this is happening, the Romans have sort of spotted them, and Brian is saying, "Hey, guys, you're all on the same side." And what's interesting about this is Brian is not an impressive person. No. In fact, the reason they chose the name Brian, and no offense to any Brian's out there, was they said, well, it's such a boring name, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of funny in an ineffectual way. I think this is what John Cleese said. It's sort of, you know, like Kevin, or what was the other one? Or Trevor. Kevin, Trevor, and Brian are names the Pythons use when they want to have an ineffectual character. That makes sense. Apologi apologies to any Brian's, Kevin's, or Trevor's who are Patreons and the Cinephiles. We don't feel that way at all. Not at all. We're just reporting... What they said, but despite being so sort of an ineffectual person, Brian is totally right. Yeah. He's the only clear thinking one in this moment, yeah. uh, which doesn't really help uh, him because all of the other guys kill each other, and he's the last one, and he's the one that the Romans captured. Yeah. Unfortunately, cinephiles, we've reached the end of part one, and now, and now for something completely different. 